Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. This was my first year at university. This was the first time I'd ever gone through anything remotely close to this. And this was debilitating. And I was freaked the fuck out. I was like, I've lost everything. It was so terrifying to think about how dark the darkness could get, right? Like, I, I remember just laying at night and just thinking, I hope this doesn't get any worse, you know, because I just don't know if I could take it. And that was the scariest part was just like, not necessarily how bad it was, but how bad it could get. And so that's the, you get into this downward spiral. And this is the first time you're going through this as a young person. You've never heard about anything like this. You don't know anyone that's gone through anything like this. So you feel like you are totally messed up. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the At the End of the Tunnel podcast with yours truly, Light Watkins. So in this episode, we're going to hear the fascinating story of Canadian native Ben Nimpton, who overcame severe mental health challenges to co-create an MTV television show that you might have seen called The Buried Life. And he's now one of the most inspiring and sought after speakers in the world on the subjects of mental health and the importance of following your dreams. As Ben describes it, he had a wonderful childhood, but just when everybody thought his future as a professional rugby player couldn't get brighter, his debilitating anxiety and depression caused him to fall apart, and eventually, he lost everything he had been working toward, including being cut from the Canadian national rugby team. Ben realized firsthand how dark the darkness could get and the importance of surrounding himself with people who inspired him. So he reached out to the friends of his who were more curious about life and who liked to dream bigger. And that ended up changing his trajectory and led to an adventure to do the seemingly impossible. I'm so excited to take you behind the scenes and explore the bits about Ben that he usually doesn't talk about in his speeches and interviews, as we're going to do a deep dive into Ben's mental state and his experiences with therapy and how he lost and then found his way and began living a life of purpose. But as always, we're going to start by exploring what Ben was like as a child and take it from there. So without further ado, here is Mr. Ben Nimpton. Ben, it's great having you on the podcast. As always, I like to start these conversations talking about childhood. So do you remember what your favorite toy or activity was as a child? <laughs> That's a great question. I do, actually. Surprisingly. Uh, I, I wouldn't think that I would. But my first memory, actually, is following my dad as he mowed the lawn and 
I followed him with my little toy lawnmower. So I had this little lawnmower when I was about three or four years old. And when I pushed it, you know, the fake propeller would spin on the top. And so you had this very satisfying kind of whirl of the blade, well, the fake blade as you pushed it. So I felt like I was actually mowing the lawn. And I think that I always, I mean, to this day, I love to like see my accomplishments to feel like, to feel like I'm progressing, I think to a fault, you know, like I always feel like I should be doing something and I like that sense of accomplishment. And so that's probably my first memory is following my dad and just loving that idea that I was cutting the lawn with my dad. I love that. Where did you grow up? Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Like what, what, what was, what was it like? I grew up on an Island off the West coast of Canada, rather large Island called Vancouver Island in a place called Victoria, BC. Victoria, BC is very close to Seattle. It's just across the water from Seattle and just across the Strait from Vancouver. So it was a town of, it was fairly large, 150 plus thousand people, idyllic place to grow up. You were right by the ocean because you were obviously on an island, but you were also right by mountains that you could ski that were also on the island. Uh, There were lakes that were 20, 30 minutes away. A lot of green, a lot of nature, very safe, really just a a beautiful place to grow up. You know, we didn't lock our doors. Uh, I had friends down the street that I was always walked down to play with them during the day. I walked to school and uh, just a nurturing place to grow up and and had a really great university there as well called University of Victoria, which I ended up going to school at. Oh, wow. So you were there for a while. You were, you grew up there. Did you have uh, brothers and sisters? Yeah. One sister. Uh, younger. Okay. So you were there straight through the college graduation or something? I was. Well, I started my postgraduate. Anyway, I started university there. I had a scholarship and I was also playing rugby at a pretty high level. And everything on paper was really good for me. And I was always, as a, you know, dating back to that lawnmower story, like I always wanted to succeed and do well and accomplish things. And that worked well for me up to the point when I crashed and I had put so much pressure on myself to succeed through high school and into university, whether it be athletically or um, academically. And I just wanted to be liked by people. I think I just, you know, I just wanted to fit in and I wanted to excel. And I was on the national rugby team we were training for the world cup. And so the pressure was building as we were preparing to go for our trip overseas. And I played the fly half position, which was a high pressure position. And you were like the quarterback and you also kicked all the field goals. And when I was in high school at the championship game in high school, at the end of the game, I missed a kick that could have tied the game for us. And missing that kick was just devastating for me. I, I really didn't recover from that mentally. You know, I, I felt like I just was a failure or, or I, I was someone that just would choke under pressure. And so leading up to the World Cup, I thought, Jesus Christ, I can, that can't happen again. You know, I can't miss an easy, what if I miss a, a field goal right in front of the goalpost at the World Cup? You know, what if I blow this once in a lifetime opportunity? And so I was thinking about this stuff at night and these thoughts would just run in my mind and I couldn't sleep. So I started to lose sleep. 
the anxiety grew and the pressure that I put myself grew, I dropped out of school. You know, I, I, I couldn't get myself to go to school. And then I stopped going to rugby practice because I couldn't physically go to rugby practice. I just was paralyzed. This is while you're a part of the Canadian national team? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was on the U19 national team and we were training to go to the the World Cup and I stopped going to practice. So before that, what was your mental state like before you missed that crucial kick? I I had never had any type of breakdown, you know, call it whatever you, you will, but I, I never had a crisis. And, and th- at this point, this was my first year at university. This was the first time I'd ever gone through anything remotely close to this. And this was debilitating. And I was freaked the fuck out. I was like, I've lost everything. It was so terrifying to think about how dark the darkness could get. Right. Like I, I remember just laying at night and just thinking, I hope this doesn't get any worse, you know, cause I just don't know if I can take it. And, and that was the scariest part was just like, not necessarily how bad it was, but how bad it could get. And so that's the, you get into this downward spiral. And this is the first time you're going through this as a young person. You've never heard about anything like this. You don't know anyone that's gone through anything like this. So you feel like you are totally messed up. You have no context and you don't understand that actually half your other friends are probably going through something similar or have gone through, you know, some sort of mental health crisis or, you know, like this is just what happens sometimes as you, as you grow and as you start to learn about what you need to be healthy, you know, and obviously this was an extreme situation and episode that I was having. So was there pressure from the outside? Like people were upset with you, like they would send you letters and notes or was it all self-imposed? It was, it was um, all pressure, all self-imposed pressure. I think there were social pressures that people put on me just by the nature of my position and what I was doing. But when I dropped, got dropped from the team. From missing practice. Yeah, from missing practice. And ultimately, I told the coach that I had a herniated disc. And I just, I said, I can't do it. Yep. Who were you talking to? Before you did that, did you have anyone to bounce this off of or you just literally was dealing with this on your own? I was just, I mean, I was talking with my parents, but I mean, my parents are two of the most supportive people in the world. But sometimes, you know, I think especially at that age, you just, you kind of deflect like their support. You know, you just, you don't want their help. Um, of course. And for me at that point, I didn't, especially my mom, she used to be a, a psychologist. And so I was, you know, just like, I don't want my mom to be my psychologist. And there was a lot of things going on, but I, I wasn't really talking to anybody. I mean, I, I tried talking to a therapist, but again, I was very much of the mind that it was a weakness, like to do something like that. And I tried taking some medication, but again, I did not want to, and I really didn't take it. You know, I maybe tried it for a couple of days and I felt so on my own that I, I wasn't talking to my friends about it. And I didn't talk about my friends about it until a few months later, after I had already become, I became a hermit in my parents' house. Like I wasn't able to leave the house really. Like I would, my parents would just encourage me to go for a 15 minute walk. And most of the time I would go down the stairs. And when I heard them shut the door behind me, I'd go hide in the driveway. So I was just immobilized by this. Traditionally, happy-go-lucky guy, outgoing, love 
socializing, <laughs> you know, and all of a did sudden you, it's, it's did you have any spiritual, spiritual foundation at the time, any sort of practices or anything you were doing that was even church, anything that was helping you say kind of grounded or get perspective? Not really. No, it wasn't until later that my mom really forced me to learn how to transcendental meditate, you know, use TM and I learned how to meditate and that's been kind of something that's been hugely important for me, especially around the lack of sleep. Like if I can't sleep, you know, I'm able to meditate and quiet my mind and I'm able to fall back asleep. So this was just a very isolating, scary time for me. And it lasted for months, like many months. What was your internal conversation? Like, where were you seeing your life ending up from that place in terms of career or anything in the future? I mean, it really was very little future for me. At that point, I thought all I could think about was the negatives, you know, what what I had lost or what had come crumbling down, that it was going to be hard to recover from this, you know, like, how am I going to go back and get back to school and, you know, get back, have, hang out with my friends again. And, and a couple friends would, you know, would, would sort of like stop by, like once people started to kind of understand what was going on after I just wasn't showing up anywhere, you know, good friends would, would pop by, but it was very hard because I was, I thought, you know, they, they, they're just pitying me, you know? So like when you're in this state, you're so, it's so dark that you kind of take, you, you're looking through a lens that's negative, you know, almost always. So my thought was like, my friend comes over. It's like, I almost feel bad for them that they're coming over here to hang out with me because they're just doing it because they want to be nice. They don't really want to hang out with me. Like, why would you want to hang out with me? I'm like, I'm, such a, I'm, like, a, I'm like a negative Nancy slug, right. just like not doing anything. You know, I'd never experienced anything remotely close to this. So that was, I think the hardest part was like, if I had sort of like hit some lows before that where I kind of had would learn a thing or two about what I needed to be healthy or like, you know, what to do in this type of situation or that other people were going through things as well. It would have been much easier. And that's why, like when I talk about mental health in general, I always empathize, empathize with, with kids that go through it because I remember this period of my life and it was just so difficult because I just didn't know anything about what this experience was or why it was happening or what I could do or who I could reach out to or that like I could actually open up to my friends. And it wasn't until I finally opened up to them about what, how I was really feeling and what I was really going through that I started to learn that these things that they had been through as well. How did you open up to them? What what, what happened? Well, eventually, eventually my friends actually almost physically pulled me out of the house and rallied me to go with them and move to a new town for the summer. So I dropped out of school, you know, I was out of commission. The summer came around and a group of my friends were going to work in a, in a new town, just to, you know, grab, grab a summer job and, and come back before, you know, the fall semester. And they kind of insisted that I go with him, them. And, and that ended up being one of the best things that I could do. Cause I, I was then forced 
to start to make decision, it's, it's decisions. I was forced to begin to take action, even though it was uncomfortable and I didn't want to, I was forced to do so, which ultimately proved to myself that I could do these things. So for instance, I had to get a job. And so even though I was anxious and I felt like I didn't have anything to offer and I, you know, I was, I forced myself to go to an interview and I got a job at a restaurant. And then I started working at a restaurant. I started earning a bit of money from working in the restaurant. I started interacting with people that didn't know that I'd just been at home for six months being depressed. And I started to gain confidence. And I also started talking about it to my friends about these feelings I was having. And then, and then I started to meet young people my age that inspired me in some way. Like they, I met these kids that had started businesses and I had just never even thought about that as something you could do. And I, I was just so blown away that right out of high school, someone would take out a loan and start a business or they'd already traveled, you know, through India. And I realized that I got energy from these people. Like they charged my battery in some way. And I, and so as I came back from being away for that summer, one of the things that I decided to do was to try and only surround myself with those people, only surround myself with people that were going to inspire me. And that decision ultimately changed the course of my life because it led me in this path that brought me down to do what I'm doing now. And, and really like if that was the catalyst or that was the defining decision that shifted my direction by one degree in the short term, it felt small, but if I look back that one degree over time, it changed my entire path. How did you do that? Did you ignore people's calls? Did you seek out cold call people who you wanted to hang out with? Or how did you do that? How long did it take to kind of curate that group of positive influences? So first I started actively seeking out people that I felt were inspiring. So to give you an example, there was a kid that was two years younger than me in high school and he had started a clothing line and I was just blown away by this clothing line that, that he created out of the blue. He took out a loan and he had created this really awesome line, but also there was a give back component to it. And I just went up to him. <laughs> like I didn't know him too well. I said, man, I love what you're doing. Is there any way I can help? Is there anything I can do to, to get involved? And he said, well, you know, you could try and get some press for me, you know, anything like that would be super helpful. And I remember reading on the front page of the national newspaper of the style section, there was an article and it's, it said, if Josh thinks it's cool, it's cool. And it was back in like the cool hunting website days. And it was this kid, Josh Spear, who started his own cool hunting site called joshspear.com. And he would post stuff that he thought was cool and then it would blow up. And I thought, man, I bet you Josh would love this clothing line. And I went to his website and there was an email there. And so I just emailed him and said, listen, I wanted to send you a t-shirt on my friend's line. You think you're going to love it? And he got back to me. I was like, holy shit, Josh. <laughs> and I, we sent him clothes and he did a huge profile on the blog. And I was like, holy crap. How, I can't believe that I just made that happen. You know? Right. And like, you didn't know either of them before you met the guy with the shirts. No, I, no, I had no... I didn't, I didn't know either of them. And it was like a meaningful thing that I had been able to pull off. It also was much easier than I thought, right? This mm -hmm. guy was just so accessible. 
you know, like a front page of the style section. <laughs> and while you were writing him, you weren't, you, you, did, you thought, okay, I'll just do this just to build momentum, but no, nothing's probably going to happen out of it. Or did you? Yeah, no, I was mind? just like, Hey, I want to, I want to help. I want to get involved in this. And so after that moment, when I was like, okay, I can't believe that I got this guy, my friend, his clothing line in this blog. I thought, man, if my friend Aaron made this clothing line, like, I wonder what I could do after I just had this experience of being able to help him out and sort of realizing that oh, maybe that's like not as hard as I, as I thought it was going to be. So I thought, well, what could I do? And then I thought, yeah, I really would love to make a movie. I would love to make a movie or a TV show with my friends. That would be so much fun. And I'd seen a video on Facebook. This is 2006, right? This is when Facebook was just still, I think, in colleges and universities. So my friend, I wouldn't even call him my friend. I knew him from the neighborhood. Like he had taken my sister to prom. That's the only way that I knew him. He had made a video of him, him and his friends at their, fir- their first year as, as freshmen at McGill University in Montreal. And it was just this like super fun kind of like they were pulling pranks and they were having fun in their dorms. And I was like, oh, I called up this kid. I said, Johnny, you make movies. Like I've always wanted to make a movie. Like what if we made a movie together? And he said, oh, you know what? I was just talking to my friend Dave about something exactly like this. And Dave had gone <laughs> to my high school. I said, I know Dave. He's a break dancer. You know, he's a crazy kid that's two years younger than me. I said, I'm going to call your older brother, Duncan, who's my age. I'll see if he wants to get involved in this. And why don't we all start just chit-chatting about making a movie next summer or something. That'd be so cool. What's your mental state now? You had depression before. You had the job. You met. You met up with Aaron. You connected him with the guy with the the style editor. Yeah. What are you so, feeling now after that first little win? So now I'm starting to feel like I'm getting back to myself. And there, you know, there are many things that are contributing to that. One of them is probably the most important piece was after th- that summer, I ended up going back to school. And as I was back at school, I had a lot of questions about what my future was going to hold. And I realized that you could talk with an academic counselor, you know, for free if you were a student at school. So I went and I met with a a counselor and I just loved this guy. I mean, he was like, he understood me and I really liked him. He gave great advice. And so he became this person in my life that I would continually go see and talk to. And, you know, he was a therapist, right? I was used someone that ultimately was able to help me identify some things that uh, were blind spots, some things that I was doing that was causing me extra worry and stress. And, but for me at the time, I still was, had this thought in my head that I, you know, to talk with a therapist is, is not something that I I feel like I, I want to do or I need to do. And I justified it. To myself by saying, well, this is a, this is a counselor. This is a, an academic advisor. And so it's okay. And like, thank God that I <laughs> just, how did you myself. know to go to the, this every, do you, was it mandatory that you go to an advisor or how did you, I maybe saw a flyer up at school, but I, I also knew that these types of people existed because they existed in my high school. And as I was trying to figure out what university to go to, I'd go and talk with one. And I was at a turning point in my sort of academic 
path where I needed to make some big decisions about what I was going to study and do. And so I sought him out, you know, and I found that there was like this, this center where there are a lot of different counselors would take meetings with different students and, and stuff like that. And then uh, over time I learned that, you know, that it was, you know, just their therapy sessions. Um, cool. So you met, you met your Obi-Wan Kenobi type. I met, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and then, yeah, he, he was awesome. like, he wore Birkenstocks. He had a ponytail. <laughs> and I mean, I've had experiences where, you know, looking for a therapist, I've talked with different therapists and I haven't connected with them or I haven't, uh, felt like it's the right fit and it's frustrating and it's hard to, you know, go through that process. You open up to someone and then it feels like it's for nothing, or you maybe even feel like you're taking a step backwards. And I just think that for, you know, for you listeners that may think, you know, I don't know, I don't know if therapy's for me. I just have found that it's probably been the single most important piece of my well-being. And just don't get discouraged if you don't find the right therapist right away. You know, if you think about going into a room of people and just start randomly start speaking to people in the room, how many people are you going to connect with that you like really respect, that you feel some sort of like connection to, that you feel really understand you? You know, it, it takes time to find those people that you have that type of connection with and that you can you have that mutual respect. And so just don't feel discouraged if you go talk to a therapist and they just turn out to not be, you know, don't write off therapy just because you had one bad experience. I encourage you to try two, three, four different therapists until you may find someone that is your Obi-Wan Kenobi. Was there a worldview that this therapist shared with you, a nugget or something that became an aha for you that just made you realize or recognize that this was your guy? He just felt like a friend. It felt like I was sitting down talking with a friend. You know, I felt totally open and comfortable speaking with him. And I, I love the way that he simplified things. You know, I have a tendency to complicate, whether it be decisions that I have to make. And he just had a great way of synthesizing the real information and making it a little more black and white and helping me navigate those difficult decisions. And, and, but ultimately it just like liked him, you know, <laughs> like I just thought he was, I enjoyed being around him. It made me feel good. Maybe I felt comfort, you know, in the fact that he knew who I was and I knew he wasn't going to judge me. And at that point in my life, that was really important. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, 
thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. Got it. So I interrupted you. You were telling us about Duncan and Johnny and you guys had just all gotten together around this movie. Yeah. So we, we were on Skype at the time because Dave and Johnny were in Montreal and Duncan and I were back in Victoria and we just started throwing around ideas of what could this documentary look like. And, and then we kind of just lost creative momentum and kept coming up against creative roadblocks and, we got to the point where we, we, we sort of had, had stopped taking these, these calls. And it was a bit discouraging. But then Johnny was in English class at McGill, and his professor assigned him this poem called The Buried Life. And The Buried Life poem was written in 1852, old English poem. And he read the poem, and it kind of struck a chord with him because he, he, when he sent it back to us, he says, guys, read this poem, because this poet, 150 years ago, is articulating the same feeling that we're feeling right now, but we're just having trouble articulating. And that's that we have these things that we've always wanted to do, but we haven't done them because they're buried. And we have moments when we're inspired, but that gets buried by the day to day. And that's why we're talking about all these things and all these ideas that we want to do. And we're wondering why we've never done any of these things. It's because school gets in the way and work gets in the way and then just life gets away and look at how life has just kind of gotten away in the way of this project like we're buried and so we thought okay we're not the first people to feel like this this dude wrote about this 150 years ago there's a lot of people that probably feel like this so let's take this name the buried life and now let's figure out what this movie and what this adventure is going to be and from there, we thought, okay, if we have all these buried dreams, how do we unbury them? And at that point, the device that we used was this question, what do you want to do before you die? It was really death, right? The thought of death was the thing that cut through all the BS and allowed us to see what was really important in our lives. So if we we're going to die one day, well, we have a limited amount of time. What do we want to do in this limited amount of time? And our answer to that question ultimately was the bucket list. So this list grew out of this question, what do you want to do before you die? And that's how the bucket list was formed. And this list was kind of, it was almost like it was, we had this rule that you had to just pretend you had like $10 million in your bank and you had had the ability to do anything when you wrote the list. So the list ended up being just this really audacious, almost laughable bucket list. And we thought, okay, cool, let's go after this list. And let's also, because we're not going to be able to accomplish this list without the help of other people, let's also help other people accomplish things on their bucket list. So we asked ourselves this question, what do you want to do before you die? Let's ask strangers the question, what do you want to do before you die? And if we can help them, then we will. So Johnny's at this college 
he gets the poem. Do you, do you know the poem? Is it, is it something you know by heart still or not really? Yeah, there's a, there's a section of it. There's two the sections section, of it that the, are, that the are popular one. important. One is, but often in the world's most crowded streets, but often in the din of strife, there rises an unspeakable desire after the knowledge of our buried life. And I think that kind of ties to the Emerson quote, the idea that you want someone to support you to be that truest version of yourself. So we, we have these moments when we're, getting, when we're inspired and we're fired up around this thing that's inside of us, but it oftentimes gets buried. Were you and Johnny and, and, and Duncan, was Dave a part of this group too? Mm-hmm. Okay. When you guys are hanging out, talking about this documentary that you want to shoot, I know for a lot of guys, you hang out and talk about girls, right? No, a guy's not going to break out into poem into poetry in the middle of a hang session. So was that something that was normally happening with you and your peers? Were you guys talking about these sort of high fluid concepts? What happens when you die and other hypothetical questions? Or was that something that was kind of out of left field? And that's why it got your attention. So the short answer is no. I definitely was not. But Johnny, Johnny is a, is a bit of a philosophical guy. Not a bit of a philosophical guy. He, he very much is... You know, he's an academic and he studied philosophy and he, he, you know, loved poetry. And so it wasn't unusual for, for Johnny to be, you know, kind of sparked by something like this. I don't think any of us would bring this type of thing to the table. But keep in mind, we're not hanging out to hang out. At this point, I don't really know these guys. We've come together to, to make this movie, right? So we're doing sort of these Skype calls chatting about creative ideas and what we want to create. So it's, it's kind of focused conversation. And other than that, I'm not, um, I'd never hung out with any of these guys on my own. So they were really sort of just uh, friends of friends, but we had this shared uh, desire and we all felt the same way, right? We all had this feeling of discontent that we wanted to do something that was meaningful. So yeah. So then Johnny sends this, this poem and I think we're all kind of like, oh, this is like kind of cool and kind of interesting, but also it feels like a little dark, you know, like the buried life and is that the right name for this? But I think it was Duncan that came with this, the, the question, what do you want to do before you die? And that for me, I was like, wow, that's cool. You know, like, I think that like, that's going to get my friend's attention. And we want to do something a little bit edgy because we just wanted it to be something that would actually, you know, trigger people in some way. And so for us, like death was taboo kind of, you know, it's, and so this idea of what do you want to do before you die? It felt like a little bit rebellious and it also felt like it would get people's attention. And really our filter for, for this from the beginning was sort of like, what, what would our friends think about this? Like, would, would this inspire our friends? Cause that was, kind of one of our missions was to inspire us, but also inspire our friends to do the things that they wanted to do. And so the question felt like it tied into to all those things. And then the list was, I mean, this was pre, pre-bucket list. You know, like I think the movie, The Bucket List came out in 2007 or 2008. I'm, I'm not sure exactly, but I'm, mm-hmm. whenever it was, it, it, we didn't hear about it until after we had done this first tour. So this was just kind of, this was just a hundred things to do before you die. That was it. Right. These were the 100 things that we wanted to do. And our tagline, and we put this on the side of the RV that we borrowed with stickers, was one film, 
four guys, a hundred things to do before you die. And who was financing this film? How, how are you guys raising money for it? So the original plan, I mean, we thought we will, we'll get sponsors and we'll, and we built a sponsorship deck and we sent it around and we got pretty negative feedback. We got, I remember, I remember one, one response was, I quote, I'm not funding your booze filled road trip. Right. <laughs> uh, that's fair. Like, but like people didn't understand. I mean, it was a difficult thing to explain to people what we were doing. And even our families didn't really understand or we didn't really know what we were doing. And our friends, we didn't really tell. We were just thinking, let's just, we're going to make this movie and then we'll show them and we'll go for a two week road trip and we'll go after our list and we'll help other people. So we were unsuccessful with sponsors sending around this deck. And so I, I decided to cold call companies. And the first company I called was a local juice company called Happy Planet Juices, kind of like the Odwalla juices or the naked juices of you know, the mid 2000s, early 2000s. Right. So, and I was terrified. Like I was, you know, what am I going to say? I make myself look like an idiot. And I called the front. I just called the 1-800 number or the, the, the number on the website. And I said, hello, the secretary. I said, yeah. hello, ma'am. I'm, my name's Ben. And uh, I actually did it. I was like, oh, my name's Ben. I uh, have a production company. We have a film. I think you're going to really want to be involved with. <laughs> and she said, okay, hang. She said, one second, please. And I thought, oh my God. <laughs> now what am I going to do? And this guy comes on the phone. He says, hello. And I said, I was like, I guess this, I just got to go for it. And I just explained. I said, sir, we're making this film. I really think you're going to be one part of it. <laughs> it's going to be about going after our list and we're going to help other people. I don't make no sense. And he let me finish and he thought, he sort of, there's a silence and I didn't know this, but he was a, this guy was an ex like hippie guy. And he says, dude, a lot of people are going to tell you that you can't do this, but you're sitting on a gold nugget and you cannot listen to them and we're going to help you. And this juice company gave us all the juice we could drink. This is what we lived off while we were on the road. And they gave us a $2,000 sponsorship and that paid for our gas. So that was the biggest chunk that we needed was, was like the gas money. We got the juice from them, which was a double whammy because then we could live off these juices. We also got Red Bull to donate Red Bulls. We got a local energy bar type of uh, granola bar type of brand to give us these bars that were so bad. Oh my God. I just remember <laughs> everyone, everyone always had the runs. <laughs> we, and we boarded an RV from Johnny and Duncan's uncle that didn't really work very well. And we took it to a mechanic and the mechanic said, guys, don't expect this to come back. Like, I don't think it's going to <laughs> And this was at the end of our prep and we were just about to go. We had this moment before we left on this road trip where we were like, guys, if this breaks down, we don't have the money to tow it back. This is not a good idea. And we almost didn't go. So I have a question really quickly. After all the rejections from the first wave of sponsors, mm -hmm. was there any doubt in you going forward in this thing? Like, oh, maybe this is, maybe we're too optimistic. Maybe this is not going to work until that angel at Happy Planet Juices says, don't listen to anybody. Like, what was your mindset after all that rejection? In our minds, we were going to walk, bike, or drive. We were going to do this no matter what. And... 
it was the energy of the group that was contagious. You know, it was kind of, if I felt like it, I was insecure about whether this was going to work, someone else would lift me up and put me back on track. And then I, I, I acted as that person for other people. So for instance, like, you know, me being if like just having kind of more of like a logical in the lane brain, I just thought before, you know, I remember thinking as we were about to leave, we had this list of hundred things to do before you die. And our goal was to go after and accomplish all the things on our list and help someone each time we accomplish it. And I remember calling up Johnny and be like, Johnny, how the hell are we going to do this? Like, how are we going to, how are we going to help people? We don't even have, have enough money to go out for a meal. Like, how are we going to actually like help other people accomplish their dreams? How are we going to find them? Like, we're just going to ask people on the street, like, what do you, what's going to, what's going on here? And he was just like, he just talked me down from the ledge. He said, listen, man, we're just going to, it doesn't matter. We're just going to try. We're going to see what happens. We're going to go after and try and do these things. And if we can help people, we're going to try and help them. And that's it. And I was like, okay, yeah. Um, so you're in Vancouver at this point, or where are you at this so point? So we're actually on Vancouver Island, which is confusing because it's, 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 a, it's an island off of Vancouver. And we're in our town of Victoria. But we're going to okay. go on a road trip around British Columbia, which is the province that we're in. So it's like, we're going to, we're going to go through Vancouver and we're going to go around. And so we're, we have this two week kind of road trip planned. And to also answer your question from before, the way that we raised money is we, we threw a lot of parties and we would, we would strike up a deal with the bar around ticket sales. And we would throw these parties to raise money. We also were working jobs. So are these college parties or who's coming to these parties? Yeah, it's, uh, it's college parties. We did like stoplight parties, which were, you wear red if you're in a relationship, green if you're single or <laughs> yellow if you're on the fence, undecided. And I don't know, we were just, I loved that process of like throwing parties because it felt like a, a little business each time. And so we got a lot of help from the community. You know, we had little mom and pop shops like helping us with our lunches while we were planning the tour. And uh, especially in the second tour, you know, we, we can get to later, but like that was a big planning period where we went on the road for two months in the States and, and uh, someone donated office space. And, you know, we, it, it was really phenomenal the way that people came together to, to help us not just cross things off our list, but actually just do this in the first place. Right. Take us through the tour. Yeah. What happens? So we're in this really unsafe RV <laughs> and we're ready to go and we're planning a huge launch and we think, okay, we're going to cross off. Let's cross off, uh, you know, like skydive, but let's, why don't we like skydive into downtown Victoria when we'll call the news down and we'll promise this giant stunt and all of a sudden they'll see a skydive in and it'll be this. And of course, when we <laughs> start to look into it, it's like, well, you can't do that. First of all, we no, don't you can't skydive. do that. <laughs> right? You got a tandem, a guy behind you going into downtown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in reality, it's, yeah, it's like a tandem over at the old uh, airstrip. <laughs> of a cornfield. <laughs> not as cool as you think. <laughs> Some guy strapped to your butt. So we're like, oh, we actually called the mayor of Victoria and try and clear the airspace and everything didn't work. <laughs> so we're like, okay, one of the things that we thought would be really fun to film and, and just really funny was number 43, which is be a knight in shining armor. 
And we just loved the idea of going around downtown in full suit of armor with a sword and everything and kind of being chivalrous, like walking damsels across the streets or helping people if they needed something, but also in this like ridiculous knight's outfit. And I was able to get a full suit of armor on loan because I had traded a friend something to get a gift certificate at his restaurant that I gave to this woman that usually rented this outfit out by the day. And I got into this, you know, 50 pounds of armor and it came with a sword and it was, uh, had full chain mail and it was, it was August. So it was really hot. And I get into the RV and the <laughs> RV is like a toaster oven. And we sort of go downtown Victoria and we had called all the media and because Victoria is a small town, there was just all these sort of a couple news cameras waiting for us. And, uh, we really talked it up and then I suddenly realized like, wait, what am I doing? I don't have a stunt that I'm doing. I, I, this is going to be a, a huge uh, flop. And I started to sweat <laughs> in this knight's armor. And at that point, it was too late. You know, the guys were like, well, you're the knight. You've got to figure it out. So off you go. And they pushed me out the front, <laughs> sort of standing in front of these news cameras. I'm like, God, well, I'm glad I can't see my face. But as I step out of the RV, there is this six-year-old boy walking with his mom. And he's holding his mom's hand. His other hand, he's holding a plastic sword. And he sees me step out of this RV and all of a sudden he just stops and his eyes go wide. He lets go of his mom's hand and he just makes a beeline <laughs> right sword. towards me with his, his sword out. He's like, all right, I, I get you. And he comes right up to me. He doesn't say anything. Right. And then he just goes down on one knee and bows his head. And I'm like, oh my God, I got to knight him. So I knight him. And then this other kid sees it and he comes over. And then all of a sudden there's all of these kids all around me. I'm knighting all these kids. I'm like, this is amazing. Where do all these kids come from? I have no idea. And I'm walking them across the street and everyone's laughing. Well, the guys are laughing at me. And I think, oh, great. This is, uh, this is awesome. It was, it was a bit of an odd list item, but we did it. And the next day we're, we're feeling good. We, we leave officially on our road trip. We pick up the newspaper as we go and we realize Holy crap. We crossed off two list items yesterday. The second is number 21. Make the front page of the newspaper. Because there I am on the front page of the newspaper in my stupid knight's uniform with this kid with his sword. And we made the front page of our local newspaper. And we're like, yeah, we did it. Great. Two list items. Let's go. But what that did was that sparked this news momentum. And all of a sudden, it was uh, provincial news. And then it was national news. You know, four guys go after their dream list. And so as we go, we actually start just kind of bum-rushing news stations and radio stations. So in every town, we'd pull up an RV and we'd just park in the parking lot. And we'd kind of just stay there until they do an interview with us. And we started to get this momentum going where now as we started to travel more and more, people saw our list online and they wanted to help us. And so people would, would send us emails saying, hey, I saw your list online. We built our own website. And they'd say, like, I saw number nine, ride a bull. I'm pretty sure my uncle can get you on a bull in Idaho. Or I saw make a toast at a stranger's wedding. My best friend's getting married. I'm the best man. I can totally get you in, right? And this inpouring of support and on the flip side, people sending us their dreams, I've always dreamed of flying a fighter jet. 
can you help? I've always dreamed of playing Augusta or I've always dreamed of, you know, reconnecting with my dad. And all of a sudden just, we were overwhelmed with these emails and we thought, what's going on? And, and we started to cross off list items that we didn't think we could, but we also started helping people that we didn't think we would be able to help. You know, like we helped this one guy who had a landscaping business and his dream was to bring pizzas to the homeless shelter. And when we interviewed him, we found out that he wanted to bring pizzas down to the homeless shelter because he had lived in that homeless shelter for a long time. Uh, but he had got himself out by starting this landscaping business. And he said, man, when people came in with food, when I was in the shelter, it felt like the best day because it felt wow. like someone actually cared about me. And we learned that his old pickup truck that he used for his landscaping had broken down. And so we thought, man, we got to figure out a way to, to get this guy a truck. You know, you keep asking him if there's anything we can do to help. And he, he just keeps talking about bringing pizzas to the homeless shelter when his whole business is on the rocks. And so right. we had limited funds, right? We had about $480 between the four of us is all the cash that we had. And we went to an RV salesman and we just walked onto the lot. Sorry, not an RV salesman, a, um, a used car salesman. And we walked onto the lot and we said, what's your cheapest truck? And it was $2,100. And we told him Brent's story, which is the name of the, the gentleman. And we said, we have $480. And he gave us a truck. And then he wow. paid for the insurance out of his own pocket. And wow. we drove the truck up to Brent and tossed him the keys. And he immediately just bear hugged all of us, right? And started to cry and never had... I don't think he'd ever had anybody do anything like this for him. And we had never done anything like this for someone else. And so this was this, it, it changed the depth of the, the mission. You know, it, it, it was, a, it was a moment when we thought we got to keep doing this. And when we came back from that two week road trip and we really dug into all these emails, we were just sort of like, wow, okay, let's, uh, let's do this again next summer. So you meet these guys in person for the first time, essentially get to know people on the road. How did you select like who wears the night outfit? Like, were you guys on the same page mostly, or was there any kind of internal sort of conflict or tension being on the road, holed up in that little broken down R and V and you're fielding all these different ideas of what to do next. How, how is that decision? How are those decisions being made? In the beginning, it was all just gut it was really simple, you know, like there, if someone wanted to do it, they would do it. If for instance, Dave wanted to ride a bull, I had no interest in riding a bull. So he rode the bull. <laughs> if more uh, than one of us wanted to do it, then we would either take turns or we would all do it. And, and that happened a lot in terms of deciding who we were going to help. The way that we usually went about it was we would, if it meant something to one of the guys, then that was enough to make it happen. And they would take lead on, on making that happen. And a lot of the times we were just on the same page, you know, we just would, we just meshed. And I think that is what was ultimately was really lucky in hindsight is that we all brought different things to this foursome and the way that we fit together, it really clicked. So in, in short, to answer your question, it was quite simple in the beginning. It was all fun. And it was just by, you know, we were flying by the seat of our pants. It did start to get complicated when we were, when the stakes increased, you know, when we did the TV show, uh, when there was, was so many more people involved, 
when there was a lot more on the line. And even as time went on and as we all grew and changed, that was also difficult because as you grow and change, but you're staying in a lane that you feel like you are supposed to be in, or you're playing a role that you have traditionally played, even though you may not want to play that role anymore, but it's for the betterment of the team, but it's not what you want to do that creates conflict. And so I think one thing that we have tried to do is as you know, cause we're talking now 14 years later, right. As time went on allowing people to continue to go on their own path as well. Right? Mm. So whether it's someone going, Johnny doing his PhD or Dave getting into comedy or, you know, starting a production company and maybe two or three of us taking roles in the production company while someone else does something completely different. Uh, you know, it's tricky, but uh, when you're working with friends and you're working as a, in, in a small team, I think that's important. All right. So you just finished a two week tour. How many items did you check off the list and you spent your last money? It sounds like at the end of the tour, so then what happens with your funding and your, did you have any supporters come out from all the news and media attention that you got that gave you yeah, so, the next steps? Yeah, this is, this is, this is good. I haven't thought about this in, in a long time because what actually happened was at the end of the first tour, we got an email and the email was from a guy who was a producer and he said, Hey, you know, Hey guys, I saw you on the news. If you ever think about making a TV show, let me know. Also, I want to help you with number, I forget what it is. I think it's 60 something. Give a stranger a $100 bill. So this guy sent us a $100 bill to give away. And so we immediately thought, okay, cool. Like this is someone that, you know, at least for now we can trust, <laughs> you know, at least he's, 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 <laughs> right. he's putting his money where his mouth is. Maybe it was just his ploy, but we ended up meeting with him. Because we said, well, number 53 on the list is make a TV show. So we, we honestly have not thought about it, but amazing. Let's talk about it. And long story short, we go to, to Toronto to meet with networks in Toronto to talk about doing a television show in Canada. And Johnny had cut a short trailer of our first tour and we had put it up on YouTube. And this is earlier days in YouTube, but it made the front page of YouTube. And so there was sort of some momentum around it. And we wow. went to Toronto and the production companies and MTV Canada wanted to do a show. And we're like, holy crap, you know, get the deal. And we start to look at it and try to comprehend what all this means. And we quickly realized that if we do this show, we're going to lose control of everything. You know, like the networks will own the buried life and, what was company. the moment you realized that? As we were talking with the producer that brought us over there and he kind of walked us through the layman terms of the deal, that language was pretty clear. Yeah. And so now we have to make this pretty difficult decision. Do we go for this once in a lifetime opportunity to make this show, which is one of our dreams, but we also won't necessarily be in control of the show and we will lose control of the future of this. And ultimately, we made the decision to not do the TV show and continue to make the documentary because it was working for us. You know, we were having the time of our lives. We were starting to inspire our friends. We felt so strongly that this was, there was something here that needed to be made that, that 
needed to come out that would only come out if we were the shepherds of it, you know, and we were young and dumb and naive, you know, and, and that worked for us because having that naivete, we didn't know any better. You know, we didn't know what it would take to actually make our own documentary or make a TV show where we were in control of it. We didn't know the, the, the money it would, it would take or the risk or any of that. We just, and we didn't have any money, but we just, we didn't care. We just thought, you know what, fuck it. Let's just, let's just keep doing this on our own. This is the best thing we've ever done. We don't want to lose this. And yes, we will give up the TV show, but we're going to roll the dice and we're going to go back to school. And throughout the whole next two semesters, we're going to save up money and we're going to go after bigger sponsors, raise more money. Instead of two weeks on the road, we're going to go for a two month road trip and we're going to finish this documentary. I think that is such a crucial point in any mission where you, you really have to take ownership of it for all the the best and all the worst, you know, because have, turning down that sort of opportunity, which on paper would instantly make you into, you know, probably one of the more successful people from your hometown or all of you guys, actually, you know, you have yep. this big MTV deal that takes a lot of character. That's definitely a common theme in people who are in pursuit of very sort of heart led mission is that it, at the end of the day, it can't be about the money. Because the moment it becomes just about the money, that's where the wheels come off on the mission. So that's yeah. so so exciting to hear that that is indeed a part of the story. So what's the conversation with the parents back home? So now the conversation is mom and, and dad. And your counselor, what is he talking about? Yeah. So with mom and dad, there's a little bit of, well, you're living, you're living at home. This is an opportunity. But- my parents were are self-employed and they have made a lot work with little. And I think the real conversation happened with them after the second tour when we really decided to put all our chips in and go after the bigger <coughs> list items, namely make a TV show, but this time on our terms. And that's when I had to drop out of school. And that's when I really, yeah, I wasn't just turning down an opportunity. I was taking a big risk. And my mom, she had taken about seven years off school and then gone back when she was younger. And she just told me, look, school will be there. You can always go back. This is, if this is something that you feel is an opportunity that may not come again, you're probably right. It may not come again. And uh, you can, you can always fall back on going back to school. And so that's what I ended up doing. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead in the timeline because this was now the chapter of when I started to, do trips solo down to LA to try and make a TV show happen after we had done our second mm -hmm. tour. But I also don't want to skip over a massive valley and a massive down when we realized, oh shit, we messed up by turning down the TV show. And that happened after the second tour, because just to kind of like, we can go into the second tour and, and, and chat about that as well, but I'll just kind of okay. gloss over it. Cause this, the story is, a long story, <laughs> but sure. Yeah, yeah. But what effectively we did then is we turned out the TV show. we go back to school and we go after sponsors this time, but now we have a track record of a tour and we have photos and we have videos and we're able to get really big sponsors. We were able to get Levi's on board. We were able to get Palm Pilot at the time, you know, the, the phone company that you know we may have mm -hmm. put out of business and we're able to 
buy a, a, a old purple 1969 transit bus that we bought off a nudist. So it was cheaper. <laughs> and we put four bunk beds in the back and we hire a crew from LA to film the documentary professionally. They follow us in RVs that we rent them. And so we were really doing a, a full scale production and we then tour into the United States for two months, right? So this is the second summer of the buried life. And we have four people following us two DPs, an audio guy and a director, and we're making this documentary. And we have, again, magical experiences. These things that are happening, we're just like, how is this stuff happening to us? How is this coming together? We're singing the national anthem at an NBA game. We're helping someone who is dying of cancer, who lives in a, an apartment that's totally bare, furnish their entire apartment based just from the goodwill of the community. We just go to a church and we just say, hey, there's someone in your community that's sick and they don't have a lamp and a bed and knives. You know, is there any way you can just donate some things? And we furnish their souls up with cutlery and plates and, you know, sofas. And we're like, how? this is incredible. So we were totally, again, blown away by the generosity of other people and the, the list items that we're able to cross off that we thought we have no business doing. And so we get back from this two months on the road and we, um, we're all excited to now edit our documentary. And then we come to realize the, the cost of post-production, of editing this footage, and also <laughs> the sound mixing and the color. And also, who's gonna buy this? Like, what's the market, right? Like, there's no Netflix, there's no Hulu, there's, there's really not a real buyer for this. You maybe get a festival darling once you do this, the circuit of the of film festivals, and maybe you get distribution, but it's a very difficult thing to do. And so we're suddenly like, okay, crap. We just turned down a TV show. We just invested hundreds of thousands of dollars of sponsorship money and did not take a dime. We didn't take anything. We put it all into the film. We've made a huge mistake. And then I moved to Vancouver to be a bartender. And a terrible bartender, I get fired. I work at, a, at the Steve Nash gym, I get fired. I work at a myriad of these odd jobs that I'm just miserable. So I, I get depressed again. And like I mentioned before, this time I see the signs coming, right? I can see that there are clues to the path that I'm going down. And I see that I'm losing sleep. I see that I'm starting to be less social. I'm seeing that I'm, and I know that I, I need to make sure I get more sleep. I need to make sure that I exercise. I need to make sure that I meditate. I need to be vigilant with some of these practices that I know are vital to my well-being. And I get myself out of this environment, which is this kind of like toxic, you know, bar environment where I'm trying to work and I, I move back home to Victoria. Still kind of being like, listen, I made it, made a huge mistake. Back with your parents. Yep. And we feel like, man, we totally blew it. You know, we, all we have all this amazing footage and had these incredible experiences. We can't even explain it to people. You know, how so do you were the other guys that? experiencing something similar? They were back home and like d doing odd jobs or they were, or, yeah, or they were like, um, two of them were in school. I dropped out of, out of school. Well, I couldn't get back in yet, you know, so I was kind of in this middle ground and one of the guys, Duncan had graduated 
and uh, he was working. We would do, um, this, is, this is kind of funny because now I'm speaking all the time and I think back to where did this start. Duncan and I would do talks to ESL classes at the university. So to 40 international students who did not speak hardly any English. They, they did not know what we were talking about. <laughs> like no idea. And we would go in and tell the story of the first two tours and we would get paid $40 each. And usually we would get a parking ticket that would take most like a third of our earnings, <laughs> like, a, like a $30 parking ticket from the university. And we would do these, these keynotes. <laughs> how, how, how many do, would you say you did thinking back? How many of those keynotes did you do? We did probably like 20. Wow. Yeah. So you have to really learn how to simplify the story. Yeah. Or do a lot of animated. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but you know this is a very dark, this is a dark dark time because of the feeling of we blew it did you ever have suicidal thoughts um depression you know, i i guess it's like uh it would be one or two degrees away like i knew it was an, an option but i've never actually thought about the act of it but I've gotten very close, you know, and at this point, I was not as low as I was the first time, Got it. but I was still, this is a major, major road bump. And was so this then, after Obama? Was this after? Oh, the no, this is pre, this is 2007. Okay. This is pre, okay. pre TV show, pre book, pre Obama, pre Oprah, pre Prince Harry, pre everything. So then my parents, they have a trip planned down to Loretto Bay, which is in the Baja. And we're going to go down to Loretto Bay uh, for Christmas, and we're going to drive down. And so I go with them. Right, I don't have anything else to do. Um, and my sister and, and, <laughs> and, and I, and we drive down to Loretto. And my parents had some friends down there. And their friends down there, their daughter was also down there. And she was a few years older than me, maybe 10 years older. Uh, so, uh, But we just started chatting, and she's like, oh, what are you up to? And I was like, ah. Oh. I don't know. Like, I was doing this thing. It was pretty awesome. And then we blew it. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean? I was like, I don't know. We just like had this TV show offer and, you know, and, and, and she's like, well, if you're thinking about doing a TV show in Canada, you should think about doing it in the States. And I was like, yeah, I mean, sure. She's like, do you have any, you know, video? And I was like, oh, we made a trailer, like a little trailer. Here it is. And she's like, wow, this is really good. You know, you should, <laughs> I have some friends that I think you should talk to. I was like, great. Like, uh, perfect. And I, you know, I didn't think too much about it until she actually contacted me later when I was back home. And she was like, Hey, if you want to come down, I have a buddy pass, you know, a free flight from a flight attendant that I can give to you. And I've got a friend that's a manager. I've got another friend that's at a production company, you know, people in LA, you kind of have friends in entertainment in every aspect of entertainment. So she's like, come on down. I'll just introduce you. And so I was like, guys, I, I'm going to go down to LA and just see what happens. And I go down and I meet with people and everyone I talk to is like, this is awesome. We should talk about doing something. I come to learn later. That's what everybody says when you go down to LA. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it didn't matter at that point. I was like, guys, you know, it lives. And so I start doing trips down to LA just solo. I start meeting people understanding the business, realizing that we need an agent, realizing that we need to partner with a production company, figure out which production company we need to figure to partner with. I meet a girl in LA, you know, we, we start dating, you know, I start spending more time down there. We get 
rep by an agency. The agency sets up meetings, but they can't get us to the production company that we want. So we get to the production company on our own. We drop the agency. The production company gives sets up pitch meetings. We meet with networks. MTV and ABC are both interested in the show. We end up going with MTV because the head of MTV, a guy named Tony DeSanto, amazing guy, he understood the importance of our imprint on this show. You know, we needed to have the creative control, which is what we've been dying to, to have this whole process. And he said, you guys can make the show. You can hire your friends as the crew. You can make the creative decisions. And I want to support you to do this the way that you want to do it. We had really earned that respect from him because of the pilot that we had cut on our own. And we had edited this pilot of us crossing something off our list and helping someone else. And so now <laughs> we, we, we had to go through the pilot process, which is a, a year-long process of making a pilot for MTV and going through focus groups that they went through, the, the testing, the executives. And it's funny, this is a side note, but it's just kind of hilarious that the pilot that we, that we cut, when we were on our second tour in the Purple Bus, when we came down to the States, one of the things that we wanted to do was walk the red carpet. And we thought, how cool would it be to walk the red carpet at the VMAs? So we found that the VMAs were being filmed in Vegas. We drove our stupid purple nudist bus down to Vegas. We were parked it in the only RV park in Vegas, which is at Circus Circus. We showered with the hose outside the, the, the bus. We went to Savers, the thrift store, bought four matching women's power suits that we found all in different <laughs> colors. We found the back entrance to where, where the, all the black limos were going into the VMAs. And we said, that's the VIP entrance. Everyone was holding a, a purple card as they went in. Did all this reconnaissance, figured out how we get in. And we think, okay, here's the plan. We're going to pretend we're filming a pilot for MTV that nobody knows about. We're going to just rush the, the VIP entrance, say that our tickets are inside. And the CEO, Judy McGrath, is the only person that knows about it. And oh, by the way, here's an email from Judy McGrath. So we faked this email from Judy McGrath. <laughs> and we had our full film crew with us. So it looked like we were filming a pilot, right? Right. And we had our director pretend he's a publicist. And, he, and we were just going to create an absolute just shitstorm of activity and hope that they let us through. So we pull our, our bus up and we make this huge fuss. We say, call inside. Judy McGrath's going to be upset. Here's the email. You know, <laughs> we're late. We're late for the red carpet. They let us through and we just roll right into the throngs of people. Open it up. Camera out. Camera out. The four of us out. Then sound. And so everyone thought we were like a band or something. They just open the red ropes, right? We go all the way through, all the way to the red carpet, into the awards, into the press area. I'm interviewing like 50 Cent and Steve-O and Akon. <laughs> and the whole time in this suit that doesn't even do up, the button is open. <laughs> and so we get out of there. They had no idea. So we, the pilot is us crashing the awards and they, the executives watch it. Judy McGrath watches it. Wow. <laughs> they think it's hilarious. That's <laughs> called the, the long game. That's yeah, called the exactly, long game. That's right the long game yeah. <laughs> and ultimately the, the show gets picked up. And now we are driving this purple bus down to LA to live, to make a TV show. Wow. It's not a day's experience in, in production. And now it's not just the four of us and our four friends that we're filming with. It's the four of us and 50 people. And that's wow. aired down. That is as low as we can get it. You know, you have, you have to take, get clearances 
right? You have to have people running tapes. You have to have audio. You have to have all of these different cameras because we're doing a lot of this stuff undercover. So mm. we're, we're doing things like trying to streak a field and get away with it, try and uh, su- survive on a deserted island and get away with it. So the cameras will come during the day and then they'd leave, you know, try and play basketball with President Obama or ask out to so go your st- dreams. You're still working from the original list that you guys put together on day one. We're working from the original list and it's, we're now going after the, the, the cream of the crop, the, the big boys. And same with the helps, like the helps are as monumental as they can be, right? So we're trying to really change people's lives. So we're helping wow. re- reconnect, you know, a father and son that haven't seen each other in 17 years or help someone find a, a home for his dad that was homeless, help someone overcome fear, you know, fear of heights or things that are holding them back emotionally. For me, it was really important to do something around mental health and stigma. And so there was a girl, <clears throat> excuse me, a girl in Rochester, Minnesota, who her dream was to make it okay to talk about the thing that she struggled with in her community, which was cutting. So she struggled with you know self-injury and cutting. And so we created an, uh, an event in her small town where we had, we partnered with Two Ray Love on her arms, which uh, is a great nonprofit started by a friend of mine named Jamie and a great musician, musician or two. We created this evening where it was music and it was speakers. And then this girl, Lexi, got up and spoke about her experience. As I was saying, it's, it, we kind of followed our gut on the stories. You know, anything that was important to one of us, we would kind of go with it. One really powerful story was we were on the streets in New Orleans and we were started talking with someone and asked this young girl, what do you want to do before you die? And she said, I want to find my mom's grave. My mom died in uh, Katrina and, and I don't know where she's buried. And wow. what happened was her, when they evacuated, they got put on uh, buses and she passed away in transit and they never found out where she was buried. And it turned out she's buried in Denver. So we found her, wow. her mom's grave brought her to her mom's grave. And, uh, and so she could have some closure. So we, we, we went on this now elevated whole new journey where we were able to share with, with finally with people. And this was just such a huge accomplishment for us because this was, this was what we had been doing for the last, and this was now 2010, 11, right? So we've been working on this for four years and finally we had something to share to hopefully inspire other people. Cause now what we were learning, which is something that we didn't realize when we started this, but now, but as we did this project more and more, it became evident and clear is that having a bucket list, doing these things is not selfish. It's actually service because you're inspiring other people to do the things that they want to do. So when you do what you love, you inspire other people to do what they love. And that ripple effect goes way beyond what you'll ever know. And that's a difficult thing to measure, but it's very real. Because now all of a sudden, especially with the TV show, all these people around the world were starting to write their bucket list and go after their thing. And I've heard really cool stories of people that I had no idea were impacted by this ripple. And they've gone on to do things that are far greater than what we did, right? And And it created this much larger impact. So that's incredible. You look at that funnel of impact, you bring that back. That doesn't come back to us. That comes back to the kid in high school that started the clothing line. 
Uh, What's so phenomenal about this idea of a ripple effect is that clothing line was not successful, right? Mm. It only lasted two years. It doesn't exist anymore. But just the fact that he did that triggered me to think, oh man, I wonder what I could do. If he didn't start that clothing line, none of that impact would exist. He literally changed the world by starting that clothing line. <laughs> and that is proof that one person can create an incredible impact, right? That's proof. Right. And so if you ever think that your actions don't impact people, think again, because every action has a reaction and you just don't know how far that reaction is going to go. And it's not just big gives or big accomplishments that create ripples. You don't know what is going to create that ripple in someone else's life. A smile can create a ripple. Smiles do create a ripple. Compliments create a ripple. Calling someone that you haven't seen in a long time you know, creates a ripple. You just doing what you, what you do creates a ripple. I've talked with friends that were inspired by a teacher, you know, well, I think mm-hmm. we've all been impacted by incredible teachers mm-hmm. that may not know the impact they've made on us, but re- literally shifted the trajectory of our life. And that happens all the time. Every day, people are creating these ripples and being affected by it. And that's why I believe you have to do that thing that you want to do. It's your mm-hmm. obligation. Because it is going to serve others. It is going to inspire other people to do that thing that's inside of them. And I truly believe that if more people did those things, it would change the world by the ripple effect. And it doesn't mean that you have to do it as your job. You know, it, 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 it just means that you have to carve out some time and protect some time to do the things that you love. Was that something you, you were aware of? during those days, the MTV days, like that, that Aaron who created the clothing line started this ripple, or is that something that kind of occurred to you much later on? Maybe when you wrote your book about it and that kind of thing. It occurred later on. Right. You know, I always knew that I was inspired by him, but the idea of this ripple effect didn't become clear until there was a little more space until I also started looking at people like yes theory or like, David Dobrik or other folks that we've heard were inspired by the show to do their thing and thinking like, holy, wait a sec. Like ours is just a drop in the pond compared to the impact that they are having and the influence they have. And you sort of step back and look at like, Jesus, you know, wow, that's a big, big positive impact, but that's not our impact. (laughs) You know, like it's Aaron's, but that's just, that's just not Aaron's. Who inspired Aaron? And I think that's an important point because it's not even necessary to know that you're a part of that ripple, right? You just got to go for it and just mm-hmm. just assume that if I go for it, I'm going to be a part of some ripple. My, I'm going to start a ripple. I'm going to be a part of someone else's ripple. And I'm obligated to do this. I'm not, I'm not. I'm obligated. I'm doing, yeah, I'm obligated. It's, it's you, literally that. And I'll tell you why you're obligated to do it, because that is the number one regret that people have at the end of their life. 76% of people at the end of their life, when asked on their deathbed, what is your single biggest regret in your entire life? 76% of people say, it's not living my ideal self. Living the life someone else wanted for me, not me. Or, or living a life that I thought other people wanted for me. Not me. 
over three quarters of the population. Uh, that is terrifying to think about reaching the end of your life when it's too late and reflecting and thinking, <laughs> fuck, man, I blew it, you know? So that's really, at the end of the day, my goal is to decrease that percentage, get more people into that minority of the population lives their life and looks back and thinks, you know what? Maybe I didn't accomplish the thing that I wanted, but I feel good that I tried. And Top by part. trying, it, it made an impact, you know, or I did it, you know, or right. that's the way I live my life and even better. But at least you won't have those re regrets. How far did you all make it through the list? We got to, at the moment, 91 of 100. What are some of the things that haven't happened yet? <laughs> well, ironically, make a movie. We haven't finished the documentary. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that got you started. <laughs> yeah, that's the big dream. And the reason, one of the reasons why is because we also want to accomplish number 100, which is go to space. And in... In our minds, that is something that we feel is the best end to the documentary. So that's something that we're, you know, working towards sort of slowly but surely. And obviously, it's becoming more and more within reach, but we'd like to do it in a very unique way. But yeah, I, I think for me, the documentary is the thing that if I am going to do one more thing or could only do one more thing, that would, that would be it. Uh, the rest of the list items are some that we put on a while ago and like now I just don't want to do <laughs> some of them are just for whatever. Some are just really hard. Like some of the hard ones make the front cover rolling stone. There's actually a really funny side story that I won't get into fully, but I should definitely tell you sometime, but we became close with Jan Wenner, who's the founder mm -hmm. of rolling stone and uh, he's an amazing guy. And <laughs> he's uh, yeah, it's just not happening. Uh, but there is a chance that maybe when it's, Perhaps like when they do the covers that are pixelated and there's like hundreds of photos, we're one of those. <laughs> right. And it's also Dance with Ellen, which, which has been very hard. And I don't know quite why it's been so hard other than maybe because we were on Oprah and they were head-to-head you know, -head competitors and just the timing didn't work out. But I think hopefully when the doc comes out, you know, that will be something. Uh, and other things that, we, that I don't necessarily want to do, but <laughs> are kind of funny was we wrote the list in the notebook days. Yeah, right? mm -hmm. the movie, The Notebook. Right, so Johnny. Johnny put on the list. Kiss Rachel McAdams. So that is still on the list, and I don't think Johnny really wants to do that anymore. I, I'm sure Rachel doesn't want to do that, but there are a few more. I have them on my site and on our website. If you want to go check them out. <laughs> but so yeah, we had the incredible adventure, which is also like a black hole. Two years of our life with the TV show, and really fighting to create that, to keep that creative control. Although we were granted it, you know, in reality. We had to fight every step of the way to keep it with the production company, with MTV, you know, it was just, just the nature of reality TV, the way that it's mm -hmm. made is uh, it's produced, you know, it's fake. So you just, every scene is scripted and to the, the to down to the, what you're going to say, it's generally, you know, for the most part, I generalized, but when you think about reality TV, you, I think, you know what I'm saying? Like docu-series are, are very real, but Right uh, at the time, you know, reality TV was in the Kardashian era very scripted. So we had to, we couldn't do that, right? We we, we would say, well, we want to break into the CMT awards because Duncan wants to ask out Taylor Swift because that's the girl of his dreams and that's what he wants to do. And so well, that's what we're going to do. They say, okay, we'll we'll contact the organizers and let them know that you're coming and we'll we'll clear the venue so that we can film there. And blah, blah, blah. wait, wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> 
why would you clear the venue and tell them that we're coming? We're, we have to break into it. That's the whole point. <laughs> right. if they know we're coming. That's them inviting us over. <laughs> that's, that's a, yeah, so we had to do things and then ask for permission later. And sometimes it didn't work. And, but it made for like a real show and it made for real failures. Like we failed playing basketball against president with president Obama. We tried everything. We ended that episode as a failure and it wasn't until later that it ultimately ended up coming to fruition. And so, mm. and I think president Obama was the biggest domino to fall. And, and by that, I mean like once a few of the bigger list items happened and I think that it changed especially with president Obama and playing basketball, that was the most impossible thing we could ever think of doing. When we wrote that on the list, it was just, I laughed at it. It was like, <laughs> sure. You were like, we'll go to space before this happens. Totally. Basically. Totally. I'm like, for, I remember Johnny was calling me from his friend's laundry room that he rented in, in Montreal <laughs> in, in 2008 when president Obama got elected. And he was like, let's put, put basketball with the president on the lift. I'm like, man, you know, I'm living with my parents on an Island in Canada. <laughs> Right. It's absurd. And then it happened. And so you had no choice at that moment to believe that you could do anything, right? The, it, 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 these accomplishments over time changed my DNA and changed right. my belief system about what I believed was possible. And it became, after that moment, it wasn't when we were presented or I was presented with a particular challenge. It wasn't can I do it? It's, do I want to do it? Cause I know right. it's going to be a shit ton of work, but I can do it if I truly want to. And that you, is a change in, 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 in a perspective that ultimately, you know, creates a whole new world of possibilities. I wanted to end on this other thing that I've heard you talk about before, which is to go for big ideas, go for big goals, as opposed to small goals or medium goals. Can you just touch on that just briefly? Yeah, I think that if you have a big dream, and I think that's the caveat in this conversation, you don't just go for big dreams just to go for big dreams. Like it has to, the most important piece of this entire conversation around a list is a list is just the most important things to you in your life. It has to truly reflect what you want to do. And it doesn't need to just be the exciting things you want to do. It, it's got to be the, your emotional list, your spiritual list, your professional list, your material list, your, you know, all the aspects of your life. That, that's what your list should be. So once you take time to stop and think about the things on your list and you write them down, so now they're real, that's important. And some of those things are big list items. I believe that those audacious moonshots are truly important to express and pursue for a few reasons. But one of them is that just the simple fact that most people, you know, it's 99% of the world doesn't believe that they can do great things. So they shoot for realistic goals, which means that the level of competition is highest for realistic goals. So if you shoot for unrealistic goals, there's less competition. <laughs> you kind of have a higher chance of getting it done. And not mm -hmm. only that, but a big dream, that's your North Star. That motivates you to get out of bed. And it rallies the best people by mm -hmm. your side. You know, if you think about who takes moonshots, you know, like in, in, in our lives or sort of like someone that's notable, right? Just Elon Musk is someone that 
you know, literally is taking moonshots. And so SpaceX or the Hyperloop or, you know, the Tesla, all these initiatives that he has, what's interesting about them is it is so motivating to think about being a part of that. And so he gets some of the best engineers, some of the best minds coming to him to work with him on these big ideas. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I believe it was XPRIZE that offered like $10 million for the first group that could uh, go to, I'm going to butcher this, but it's going to the moon twice in some period of time. Uh, Don't quote me on it. But it basically was like, here's X million dollars for the first group that can pull off this feat. And he made an announcement and it was a big, holy crap, this guy's giving away $10 million. He didn't have the $10 million. But after he announced it, <laughs> he got the money right? because he created this uh, support. And that's why, I talk, that's why it's important to, to share your goals, right? Like when you talk about them, if you don't talk about your goals, no one can help you. You're on your own. You have a less chance of su- succeeding if, if you're on your own. You don't have the help of other people. You don't have the insight from other people. So when you share your goals, you give others a chance to help you. And you create accountability that you need to drive yourself forward towards these goals, which is what we need with our personal goals, because there's no deadlines. Just a couple of reflections. So I'm so happy to hear that it took you guys four years to get this thing really going, because, again, another big misconception is that people who do big things, it happens overnight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you guys had your sort of baby step tour where you just kind of tried it out, did it lasted for two weeks. You took a pretty decent amount of time off. You did the, the two month tour where you really learned what was needed. So then by the time you got your big deal, you kind of knew the better questions to ask than you would have been able to ask without having any experience at all, which I think is really important. And it's also a common feature and a lot of people's stories who have who started movements and have gone through their own sort of dark tunnel moments. Also, when I think back to you as a kid and you following your dad and with the toy lawnmower and he's with the big lawnmower, you know, what that seems like now, what that feels like after hearing your story is that we're all kind of on a path and we've, we've kind of put a lot of pressure on ourselves to make things happen, but really if we just keep saying yes to it, the path will just kind of be there for us. We just have to kind of have, be brave enough, encourage enough to, to, to go along and use whatever we have, mm-hmm. even if it gives us the illusion that, yeah, we're doing it. But really, you know, it's kind of one of those Zen concepts. Are we doing it or is it doing us? <laughs> and, and, and the big thing is just showing up for it, just showing up for, for what's in your heart. Yeah, I think I, I, I love that, especially because I think one of the things that I've learned at least in the last you know few years, is success sometimes comes when you follow what's easy. And what I mean by that is by saying yes to things and following paths that you inherently feel like you could do. And it's almost like you, you sometimes feel guilty that people might actually be paying you to do them. And that is your, that's your true gift. And I've spent a lot of time just grinding, trying to make something happen and not having the awareness 
to step back and be like, wait, is this really working? Am I really enjoying this? Is this really like the true expression of, of myself? Or am I just trying to make this happen because I don't want to fail? Or I think this is the thing that I should be doing. And Tim Ferriss has a great quote. He said, he, he asks himself, what would it look like if it were easy? And then try that. And for me, when I think about like the major successes in my life, it's, it's been following this ease and this, this natural momentum and saying yes to things and, and seeing where they're, where they're going, whether, even though I don't know how they're going to actually end up helping me in the long run, but just because it feels like it's this ease that I'm experiencing. And so I would say if you could follow those rabbit holes, just see where they go. You just don't know where that ease will take you. Uh, and it may just take you to a place where you just have a lot of fun. Or it may take you to a place where you have a lot of fun and you earn money. But, you know, if I think about even in this past chapter where I'm doing public speaking, I never dreamed that I would be doing public speaking full time. In fact, even when I started it, I didn't think I was going to do it. But I, I just was so fed up with grinding when we were building our production company that I just needed to do something different. And I just started you know, speaking because it felt like, oh, this is a great creative expression. This feels easy for me to do. And it became something that I love. And now it becomes what I'm, what I'm doing. And what's for great me, about that too, is that you're literally being paid to talk about the dark moments in your life. Yeah. You're being paid to talk about dropping out of school and quitting or getting let go of the rugby team and yeah. the depression and living in your mom's, your parents' basement as a hermit. I mean, all going through all those moments, you feel like a failure. And now, now that's a part of your story, your success story. Yeah. Not only is it a part of my story, but it's actually the, excuse me, it's actually my strengths. <laughs> like it's that's actually, right. those are my tools that I use to help others. The irony of that is just, it's phenomenal. You know, we're talking about the thing I was most ashamed of in the world. I wouldn't even talk about it. And now I talk about it because it's a gift that I have to help others. What do you say to someone who's going through a dark period right now to help inspire them to understand that that is probably going to be their trajectory as well? One, know that this feeling of, of hopelessness does not last forever. And it's really hard to see this in the moment, but I do think that it's true is that there is a blessing in this. There is a gift that you will be able to pull from this. It may not feel like it right now, but at the very least, what you are learning is your, or what you are building is, is empathy and you're building and understanding this, this sense of empathy for that you will have for others that are going through something similar. And that's, a, a gift that I feel like I've been blessed to, to have because now when I speak to people and I, and they tell me, you know, Hey, I'm really struggling with anxiety. And I can say, listen, I know how you feel and I get it. And it's, I've been there and you know what? Here's like a couple things that you could try because they helped me. And I, I, I think that there's this human connection is something that we all need more of, meaningful human connection. And you build that understanding and the ability to, to really connect on that level. And so, and so that's one of, of many gifts that I think you can have and will have from going through these, these tough times. 
because what you're doing is really understanding a lot about yourself. And, and again, maybe you don't understand it right away. And I certainly didn't, but as I reflect, you know, if I think back about these, these times that there were real lows, I learned a ton about what I needed to, to, to perform at the highest level, you know, like, as I said, things like tools, like meditation, gratitude, exercise, diet, uh, helping others, you know, this, this incredible power of, you know, if you feel depressed and you help someone else, you can't think about how depressed you feel when you're helping someone else. You, your brain can't do it. Can't think about two things at once, two people at once. So, and you build a human connection. So this acts of service when you're feeling down and all these other things that I wouldn't have been forced to, you know, kind of figure out if I was riding high. Now I use them not just when I'm feeling down, but, you know, to optimize what my well-being. talking with a therapist as well. So those are two things. And I, and it's, um, but I empathize with those that are, that are going through it. And I think that a lot of people are right now. And I would just encourage you to remember at the very least that you're just not going through it alone. There's no way you're alone. Ooh, man, thank you so much for that conversation. I want to acknowledge yeah, you for your bravery and your and your your creativity and and just the way you just kept showing up for your your path for your journey. And I think you're you're a true inspiration to me and to anyone else who comes who crosses paths with you or your story. So we'll obviously put all of the contact the relevant contact information for getting in touch with you in the show notes. And just want to thank you, man. Thank you for being so open and generous with, with sharing the, the backstory. Sometimes it's a little bit, I think it's uncomfortable for some people to talk about these things, but um, mm -hmm. you, you, you really leaned into it. So thank you so much for that. We, we appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks for giving me the, the time to pull it out. It's, it's fun to <laughs> reflect on that. I mean, I don't do it often. So thanks for having me. Uh, I had a, had a great time and I'll see you soon in Venice. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you guys for listening to my interview with Ben Nimpton. Hopefully you're inspired to create a bucket list of your own if you don't already have one. I'm grateful to Ben for being so transparent about his journey. And when you get a chance, definitely check out his TED Talk so you can hear the story of how he ended up crossing off one of the more impossible items on his bucket list which was playing basketball with none other than President Obama at the White House. In the meantime, make sure you're subscribed to At the End of the Tunnel so you can hear more amazing stories about regular folks just like me and you who are overcoming all kinds of mental and emotional and financial obstacles to help improve the lives of others. And please rate and review the podcast so other people can discover these interviews you can also find links to everything Ben and I discussed in the show notes below. I can't wait to share the next interview with you. Until then, make a plan to tell at least one person about your dream. You never know who can help make it into a reality. See you next time at At The End of the Tunnel. And thanks again for listening. You want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote 
that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.